I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is a special guest that I'm sure many longtime listeners will find to be uh, surprising and certainly unique. I'll be joined in segments two and three of today's program by a gentleman by the name of Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Uh, Mark is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. Uh, he is a cryptocurrency proponent, uh, and I know you're going to find my conversation with him to be uh, very interesting. As I have been offering on the program uh, during the month of March, I've got the March special report, and certainly in light of what precious metals have done price-wise so far during the month of March, if you've not yet requested your copy of the March report, I would encourage you to do so. The website to visit to request your copy of the report is requestyourreport.com. The report for the month of March is The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. I'd be very glad to send you a complimentary copy of the report, along with uh, a number of resources that I think you'll find to be very timely given uh, where we are today. So again, just go to requestyourreport.com and let us know where to mail that information. We'll be very glad to do that. You know, when you take a look at big picture, what's going on in the economy? I mean, we've got geopolitical tensions with, with Russia, Ukraine. Uh, we've got the stock market looking extremely fidgety over the past couple of weeks, as we have been forecasting. But when you take a look at what's going on, the, the big economic story continues to be dollar devaluation. Dollar devaluation is really another way of saying consumer price inflation and as a result, worldwide, alternatives to the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency have been sought and continue to be sought. And this past week, President Joe Biden signed an executive order that was on Wednesday calling on the government to examine the risks and benefits of cryptocurrencies. Now, I'll tell you uh, why I think this happened in just a moment, but let me give you just a bit as to what is in this executive order. First, it calls on federal agencies to take a unified approach to regulation and oversight of digital assets. That's according to a White House fact sheet. One of the things that drives politicians and regulators crazy about cryptocurrencies is that they can't control it. Cryptocurrencies exist digitally using a technology known as blockchain technology and regulators do their best uh, to try to control currency and currency alternatives. Now, interestingly, the Biden administration is calling on the Treasury to assess and develop policy recommendations on crypto. It also wants regulators to, and I'm going to quote from the executive order, quote, ensures sufficient oversight and safeguard against any systemic risks posed by digital assets. Let me, let me repeat that. Quote, ensures sufficient oversight and safeguard against any systemic financial risks posed by digital assets. It's interesting that he's not calling for the Treasury to assess systemic risks caused or posed by continued dollar devaluation. That would be certainly uh, a fruitful exercise in my view. 
Now, another area of this executive order focuses on rooting out illegal activity in the crypto space. The president has called for, quote, unprecedented focus of coordinated action, end quote, from federal agencies in mitigating illicit finance and national security risks posed by cryptocurrencies. He's also urging international collaboration on the issue. And of course, not surprisingly, there is a provision in the executive order to examine how cryptocurrencies affect climate change. There is a lot of energy used when Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are mined. But when you look specifically at Bitcoin, Bitcoin relies on a mechanism that's known as proof of work. And this mechanism confirms transactions as well as it generates new units of currency. So essentially what happens is you've got this network of computers competing to solve complex math puzzles in order to mine the cryptocurrency. And the more computing power a miner has, the higher the chances of them being rewarded in new Bitcoin, which is a fairly lucrative business. Now, China banned cryptocurrency mining completely last year. All that really did is had the crypto mining companies leave China and go to other countries uh, like the U.S. and Kazakhstan actually attracted a number of crypto miners. And finally, the Biden administration also wants to explore a digital version of the dollar. Now, China has been really leading the charge towards central bank digital currencies. Uh, more and more people in China are using smartphones to make payments and handle their finances. And I reported here on the program when the Federal Reserve uh, released their report uh, on a digital dollar, uh, and they really didn't take a position as one would expect on their initial paper. Uh, they just detailed the pros and cons of such virtual money. Now, again, this is all developing because the dollar is really lost a lot of confidence around the world. Now, Jerome Powell, who is the chair of the Federal Reserve, testified on Capitol Hill last week. He said the central bank will hold the course. They will, they will tighten monetary policy. They will increase interest rates. They will slow and ultimately cease the rate of currency creation. He also, in his testimony, continued to dodge any responsibility for rampant inflation. In fact, Mr. Powell said that the Fed isn't monetizing government debt because they don't intend to hold on to these treasuries forever. If they get rid of them, they're really not monetizing or subsidizing deficit spending when, in reality, that's exactly what they're doing. And meanwhile, we have food and energy prices soaring. I don't need to explain that to anyone listening to this program. Oil touched $130 a barrel recently. This is causing more and more people to spend money on food and energy, and when they have to spend more on food and have to spend more on energy, they spend less in other places. That means that in a consumer-spending-dependent U.S. economy, we may be headed for recession. In fact, the Atlanta Fed just last week said they're forecasting a 0% growth rate for gross domestic product in the first quarter of this year. I would dare to say that we are probably already in a recession. 
Now, during the State of the Union, President Biden blamed inflation on greedy corporations. I talked about this on a recent headline roundup. If you'd like to see the headline roundup newscast, they are all archived at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Peter Schiff talked about this, past guest here on the program this past week, and I want to tell you what he said about it. He said, quote, the Democrats want to use high inflation as an excuse for even more government and even more regulation when it's government that's actually responsible for inflation, which is the whole ridiculous part of the testimony where you have the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Mr. Powell, as I just mentioned, the Federal Reserve is printing all the currency, and the chair of the organization that's printing all the currency is fielding questions from the congressmen who are spending all the currency. So you really have these two partners in crime that are 100% responsible for inflation, and they spend the entire hearing talking about how, how bad inflation is, what a, what a horrible problem it is, and they're trying to point fingers at who might be to blame without anybody accepting responsibility that inflation is not here by accident, and inflation is not here because some businesses got greedy. If that was the case, we would have had inflation, persistent inflation, for many, many years. The reality is inflation is here for one reason, and that is the government isn't spending money. It collects in taxes. It's spending currency that the Federal Reserve prints or creates. Now, as I've said here on the program, my take is this. The only way to stop inflation is to cut government spending so the Fed can stop monetizing the debt. This problem cannot be fixed unless the government cuts spending. And I think we could all, without being a Vegas odds maker, predict what the odds of that are. I believe it's not going to happen. So what does that mean? It means that inflation, I believe, will continue to get worse. Now, Powell was asked directly during his testimony as to whether or not the Fed was monetizing government debt. He said the Fed wasn't monetizing debt because the central bank has no intention of holding on to it. That's exactly what Ben Bernanke said when he started this program of quantitative easing in 2008. He said once the crisis is over... The bonds will be sold, and yet here we are 13 years later, and it's not over. It's just getting worse. If you like a perspective on one way to potentially protect yourself, I would invite you to get my March special report titled The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. You can request the report as well as some bonus information I'll be glad to send you by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Mark Jeftovich. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I am pleased to have joining me first-time guest on the program, uh, Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Uh, Mark, uh, you may be surprised that I have this gentleman on the program. He actually is the publisher of the, crypt the Crypto Capitalist Letter. 
Um, and you can learn more about his work at thecryptocapitalist.com. We'll talk more about that. But Mark, welcome to the program. Pleasure to have you. Hey, Dennis. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. So I took a look at the Crypto Capitalist letter, and it's almost like a book. Uh, it's, it's extensive. I was extremely impressed, Mark. Let me start with that. And in the February issue, you talked about the fact that you laid out four possible scenarios for the post-pandemic world, and, and I thought that uh, your perspective was terrific. Uh, can you explain to the listeners a little bit about what you were forecasting? Sure. Yeah, that, uh, that scenario sort of exercise goes back to last summer, um, or actually maybe it was the summer of 2020 when it first happened. And I put out a series on my free blog, which was over uh, bombthrower.com, and I called it the Jackpot Chronicles. And the jackpot is a term I cribbed from William Gibson novels. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with him. And that was in a series of uh, near-future cyberpunk scenarios, there was this cataclysm that happened that he called the jackpot and it was started by a pandemic and it took on various forms and it just was typified or characterized by the world just going into this prolonged phase of lurching from crisis to crisis and there was never a return to normality and as I said, there was a pandemic and in one of his scenarios, there was a limited thermonuclear exchange with Russia. Uh, it was all kind of creepily prescient looking at it now. But I, I use that phrase to lay out four possible post-pandemic scenarios. And I called that the Jackpot Chronicles. And uh, I'll just like tell you the four scenarios quickly now. And if you want to dig into them, we can. But uh, the first scenario was Mad Max, which was a complete collapse of institutions and social cohesion. Uh, the second scenario I called tinfoil hat, which was, you know, all the unhinged conspiracy theories around the Great Reset, the New World Order, the pandemic, that they were all true. Uh, the, third, the third scenario I called the Great Bifurcation, which was almost a controlled demolition of the middle class and the rise of a you know, a, a starkly divided two-tier society of haves and have-nots. And the last one I called uh, the Great Reject, uh, which is a riff on the Great Reset. And that's a scenario where the people largely en masse just reject all of these sort of edicts coming from on high. The centers don't hold. And we have this secular opt-out and sort of categorical rejection of the, the sort of obsolete institutions. It's, you know, like a fourth turning kind of scenario. And then, of course, my punchline to all this is which one are we going to experience? And it's all four simultaneously <laughs> forever. So that's, that's what that was all about. Well, Mark, just maybe fast forward to what we're seeing today around the world. And it seems that, you know, you're pretty much spot on. Do you want to comment? Well, it's, I wasn't really predicting anything as much as looking. I mean, everyone was predicting a lot of different things, and I would just sort of look at them and think which one feels the most plausible to me. And what I've said for a long time is 
it's almost impossible to predict the future, obviously, by definition. But what I, what I find a little more useful is looking at what are the assumptions or the linear extrapolations of normalcy that are assumed to continue forever that can't sustain. And so you look at, you know, people like the Davos crowd and, and the, the World Economic Forum, everything they're trying to do is sort of like a linear extrapolation of the last 20 years of the neoliberal order. And I look at things like that and think, is that realistic that that's just going to continue in a linear fashion or not? And, and I came to the conclusion that a lot of these things we assume are just not going to continue. They're not sustainable. And the common denominator to all of it really is debt. So when you look at debt, you know, everyone, I bet you, everyone listening to this, to this show has seen the graphs and you look at the debt, especially since 1971, the end of the, of the Bretton Woods era and the beginning of the fiat currency era, which is more of an experiment than the norm throughout history. And you look at that graph and you think this is the core, the root of all of the instability that we're experiencing. And I'll just, you know, wind it down by saying, you know, we've been kicking the can for that entire era, the 50 year fiat currency era. And we finally ran out of runway and that's where we are now. And then at around the same time, we're, we're running out of runway. We have this, systemic shock to the system from some exogenous factor like COVID, whatever's happening now, like the Ukraine. And it's, uh, this is, this is going to change the structure, the very fabric of how we, how we organize our societies. So when you see just to focus, uh, Mark, on, on on monetary policy, I mean, we've seen the the Federal Reserve uh, over the past couple of years here in the states uh, create immense amounts of currency out of thin air, and now now we have inflation that's rampant. And you mentioned debt, and you know when you look at uh, the time of the financial crisis uh, about a dozen years ago or so now, uh, there was about 120 trillion dollars in world debt. Uh, my numbers tell me there's about 300 trillion now. So all this currency creation has just been to to, to mask the debt. So my, my question to you is, in your view, um, when does the inflation stop, and maybe how bad does it get, and when does the deflationary effect of this debt unwinding kick in, if you agree with that scenario? I mean, the inflation deflation. Um duality or argument has been has been ongoing for a long time i've got a good friend charles hugh smith we used to do a podcast together he's written a number of books i'm sure some of your readers have read and he is uh always been you know deflation first inflation second and i was always along the lines of i i can't see uh i can't see deflation happening before like I think it's got to be inflation because they cannot, there will not be a whole scale debt liquidation until the entire system gets either falls apart or gets restructured or completely reinvented. So until then, they're going to try frantically, and by they, I mean the central bankers and, and, and um, you know, the political class to keep the train on the tracks and to keep the wheels 
going, and all that has to be continued monetary expansion. They can't let interest rates rise meaningfully, and all of that's going to lead to inflation. Whether it becomes you know, hyperinflation, who knows? You used to be automatically labeled bonkers for saying hyperinflation maybe 10 years ago. Uh, today, not so much. You don't really you don't get the strange looks anymore if you say that in polite company. So, Mark, that brings us to uh, your publication, the Crypto Capitalist Letter. And if you're just joining us, I'm chatting today with Mark Jeftovic. Uh, Mark is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. You can learn more at thecryptocapitalist.com. And Mark has offered the listeners uh, a month for seven bucks if you want to check it out. It's cryptocapitalist.com/trial. So, uh, Mark. Give us the, the, the background. What, what motivated you to start the, uh, the Crypto Capitalist Letter? Well, we were under lockdowns, and like most people, I was pretty unhappy about being under lockdown. I was fortunate in the sense that my main gig is I run an internet company called EasyDNS out of Toronto. So I was lucky in that I was already working from home. We had already moved to a virtual office set up uh, in mid-2019, just a crazy turn of luck there. But we were under lockdown, and that just I, I was getting very frustrated, um, you know, feeling pretty negative, and I just thought, what can I control? What can I do? And I thought I would just buckle down on my investment game. I've always been a value investor at heart. I love studying the stories of, you know, uh, the Warren Buffetts, the Charlie Mungers. I know they hate crypto, but I still respect them as investors. And, you know, the Mark Spitznagels and the, the, the Seth Klarman, all those guys. And so I thought, I'm just going to study the uh, craft of investing. And I thought I would concentrate on microcaps and nanocaps. And I kept finding these really undervalued sort of penny stocks at the time that had one common denominator. They were all cryptocurrency companies like Bitcoin miners or something like that. And um, I just started buying the shares and writing up, and I started writing up reports about them and it turned into the crypto capitalist letter. So I've, I've been into crypto since 2013. On the first sort of big run-ups, there weren't really a lot of publicly traded uh, crypto companies. Uh, but this time there were, like in 2020, there were publicly traded crypto companies and they were penny stocks that were actually trading at, like some of them were were, were real uh, Ben Graham style net nets, like trading for less than net asset value. When you looked at the Bitcoin they had on their balance sheet and things like that, it was it was really asymmetric. So I just started buying up these companies and I started writing a letter that had this macro focus on on why crypto because of the monetary policy and sort of the way the world was going. And then it had this tactical focus on publicly traded Bitcoin or crypto companies. Well, I'm chatting today with Mr. Mark Jeftovic. He is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. You can learn more at thecryptocapitalist.com. If you'd like to try the letter out for a month for 7 bucks, go to thecryptocapitalist.com slash trial. And uh, the good news is we have one more segment with Mark, and we'll get to that when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is first-time guest, Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Uh, Mark is the publisher of the Crypto, Crypto Capitalist Letter. You can learn more at thecryptocapitalist.com. So, Mark, the listeners know that I have been um, an advocate of having um, a good share of your portfolio. Uh, it's, it's different, obviously, depending on who you are, but to hedge from this monetary policy, this fiat currency devaluation, I've been an advocate of holding some metals in the portfolio. And while I regret not buying Bitcoin when it was 10 or $20 and wished I would have, um, I have not been uh, in, that, in that camp. So let's talk a little bit about um, how you see cryptocurrencies fitting into a portfolio moving ahead and how would you relate Bitcoin to precious metals? Well, I, uh, I've never thought of crypto or Bitcoin as a Bitcoin versus precious metals ever. I've always been Bitcoin and precious metals. More accurately, I've always been precious metals and Bitcoin. I've been invested in metals since the late 90s. I have positions in gold mining stocks that are older than my teenage daughter. I have been in it for a long time. I've been unapologetically overweight gold and silver for, I guess, most of my adult investing life. And I don't regret it. And so when Bitcoin came along, well, there's a little bit of a, a reason why Bitcoin struck me uh, so um, so glaringly when I came across it. And that was in the early OOs. There was a movement of digital gold currencies that you probably remember and a lot of your listeners probably remember. Mm-hmm. E-gold and PC Unix and e-bullion and gold money is still around today. So my main company was the first domain registrar to accept e-gold as a payment method. And so we would just, you know, we do domain registrations, and web hosting, and people would just pay with e-gold and we would just redeem it out in physical coins. And we still have those to, to this day. We've got, you know, we have it in our vaults and our safety deposit boxes, all this physical gold that we earned in those days. And when Bitcoin, and I really thought that that was going to be what Bitcoin became today, but it was, it had some governance issues. It had some architectural issues. And so we all know Eagle didn't make it and neither did most of the other ones. And gold money is the only one that's still around. Uh, there are a few others, and now I'll just quickly add that there are blockchain-based physical gold like uh, Kinesis and uh, Cash.Gold and things like that. So those exist today as well, these actual hybrids of cryptocurrency and physical vaulted gold. But when Bitcoin came along, it seemed like, you know, this this could be – this one could make it. This could really be the one that changes the game. And so I did the same thing all over again. Uh, my company, the DNS, became the first domain registrar to accept Bitcoin as a payment method. We hung out our shingle. 2013, we started taking Bitcoin payments, and we still do to this day. And we just took the payments and we hodled it. We just put it on the side and stashed it the same way we did with the Eagle, you know, 10 years earlier. And that's actually how I advocate your main. Uh, my preferred way for 
for acquiring Bitcoin is really to earn it at your business or as you know, in your earning, uh, whatever you do in your day to day life. I like owning businesses. I like having multiple streams of income. And so if you can start having some of that income coming in in cryptos and you just hold that Bitcoin or you just hold that crypto, then that's the preferred way to do it. And so for for my outlook on all this, it's all about having tools. And I think gold is a tool and I think cryptos are a tool and they give you different options for protecting yourself from central banks and from government confiscation, which is now very much more in the forefront. And for me, what I say is the ultimate commodity when we're living in the jackpot is optionality. And gold and cryptos give you different kinds of optionality. And so I want both. I want to be long optionality across as many different vectors as possible. So, Mark, I want to talk to you a bit about your your philosophy and uh, when, when choosing these these crypto companies, and maybe zero in a little bit more on what those are. But but let me just ask you first. Uh, you know, China, Russia, South Korea have all attacked Bitcoin. Um, how do you see uh, government attempts at regulation playing out? Yeah, there's going to be, there will be government regulation in the West. Everyone expects it. No one is surprised by it. But I think what does surprise everybody is that Bitcoin is unkillable. I mean, there's the, there's a meme in the Bitcoin community called the honey badger, and the <laughs> honey badger don't care, right? Whatever you throw at it, the honey badger is going to, the honey badger doesn't really care. It's just going to get on with its business. We've missed, or not we, I think if anyone was going to shut down Bitcoin or ban it or try it in the West, that that ship has sailed. There's just simply too much involved with it now. It's part of the plumbing. It's part of the system. It's still very early in the game, but we are past the point of no return. And, you know, look at China. They banned Bitcoin. They kicked out all the miners. The hash rate on the network dropped like 60% practically instantly. But the network kept right on going. And today we're already, I mean, we were, we were hitting new all-time highs in hash rates since, you know, six months ago. It took a very short amount of time. The game theory and the incentive structure of Bitcoin is pure genius to the point where um, it doesn't really matter what governments try to do to ban it because the incentive structure is such that it's going to be adapted. The more governments clamp down on Bitcoin, the more, the stronger the incentive is to acquire Bitcoin. And we saw that happen in Canada. We're seeing it happen right now with the weaponization of the entire financial system. And the last thing I'll say about it is look at the countries where they are attempting to ban Bitcoin. They are complete 100% authoritarian, totalitarian police state dictatorships that are centrally planned. We all know that those kinds of societies can't last long term. But here in the West, if we really, I know we're making sort of head fakes or we're making movements towards that kind of society. I think some lawmakers would prefer it, but overall the ethos here in, in the developed world, Western world is 
is uh, people like autonomy, people like economic sovereignty. And here in the West, we have the means to acquire that in Bitcoin and gold, but Bitcoin is one of those ways to acquire that. And we're way past the point of being able to ban it. So, Mark, in the, in the time we have left, let's talk about your what I would describe as a very unique approach to getting exposure to cryptocurrencies in a portfolio. Uh, maybe you're going out and, and buying Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of the other cryptos, but uh, you're really focusing on companies that that work in that sector. So, so can you just explain a little bit about uh, what types of companies you're, you're looking for and, and how you find them? Yeah, sure. So there's a whole plethora of publicly traded crypto companies now. And um, I guess one of the reasons I went in that direction is here in Canada, we have these things called registered retirement savings accounts. And so you've got, excuse me, you've got money in there that's kind of captive until you retire. And so your options for what to do with it aren't super varied. You can put it in the stock market. You can put it in mutual funds. You can put it in bonds. That's about it. I mean, there's some other exotic things, but they're not terribly accessible. So I thought, you know, I have this money that's stuck here until I'm 65. It's a tax reduction strategy. So I'm going to just start getting more exposure to crypto by just allocating some of this money into crypto stocks. Because uh, I've never been one to buy, you know, the unicorns like the Shopify's and the Tesla's. It just never made any sense to me. So as I said in the other segment, I was looking, I'm a value investor at heart. I'm looking at all these companies a couple of years ago, seeing where the value is. I keep, I practically stumbled into the crypto stocks because I would find like a Bitcoin mining company that has more Bitcoin on its balance sheet than its shares are worth. And so it's trading for less than net asset value. So it kind of becomes a no brainer, especially with if Bitcoin is going up in a secular fashion, which we think it is. So I look for companies. I don't look for crypto companies that are like just kind of trying to glom onto the trend. Like they don't have a business or they don't have activities. I'm looking for real companies that are mining crypto, uh, I prefer the ones that don't sell the crypto they mine. They just mine it and they hodl it or they even lend it out to get a bit more yield. But that's sort of what most of the Bitcoin miners do. There's decentralized finance companies that have these wide arsenals or wide ranges of cryptocurrency assets that they own that they then they then drive yield and income from them in various different ways. There are companies that run like masternodes and validators, which is similar to mining, but it's it's this is proof of stake, not proof of work. So there's an argument to be made there for less energy usage. So com- I, I look for companies that have real businesses, real assets, real income coming in in the form of crypto assets, and I want to own those companies. Um, yeah, there's one company, I'll just mention it, uh, Galaxy Digital. I think I like them because they they are like an investment company that invests in crypto companies. I, I think they're going to be the Berkshire Hathaway of the crypto age. I really like them. And uh, they're, based, they're listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. They're moving to the NASDAQ at any time. And, and uh, that's just one of our core holdings that we just say, like have, Whatever you're going to put into crypto, 
take 15% of it and put it into, into this one, because then you own, you know, 85 other companies in the crypto space. And you're just sort of, um, you're just leveraging the brains of that operation. Well, the clock says we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Mark Jeftovic. He is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. Uh, Mark has graciously offered the listeners a $7 trial for a month. Go to CryptoCapitalist.com slash trial to claim your $7 trial. And Mark, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, you taught me something. I'd love to have you back down the road. Thanks, Dennis. I'd be happy to come back. We will return after these words. are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. Thanks again to Mr. Mark Jeftovic for joining us on today's program. If you're just tuning in, I'm making available the March special report titled The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. I'd love to send you the report absolutely free along with some bonus information just visit the website, requestyourreport.com, and I'll be glad to send it to you. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com. You know, precious metals have historically always been viewed as a terrific inflation hedge, and I happen to be of the opinion that they will continue to be a good inflation hedge, which is why I'm making that report available this month. And it's obvious that inflation is upon us. In fact, there was a CNBC article published this past week on March the 8th that pointed out that even though wages are up 5.1% over the past year, wage increases are significantly lagging the rate of inflation. Mark Hamrick, who is a senior economic analyst at Bankrate, said, surging prices are stealing the show on the minds of consumers. I mean, the official inflation rate is just under 8%, but when you visit shadowstats.com, a website maintained by, an excellent website maintained by past guest here on the program, Mr. John Williams, you see the official inflation rate when you use the same inflation calculation methodology that was used prior to 1980 is about 16%. Well, think about that. If your wages go up 5.1%, but inflation goes up more than 10% more than that on a real basis, you're going backwards in a hurry. Now, at the start of 2022, 64% of the U.S. population was living paycheck to paycheck. That's up from 61% in December. So in one month, 3% or about 1 in 33 American households went from having some cushion to living paycheck to paycheck. And obviously the culprit is inflation. You know, you've got to eat, you've got to commute. Those are not discretionary expenses. And this is affecting not just lower-income Americans, but there was a survey done of adults earning six figures or more. 48% of households earning six figures or more now report that they are living paycheck to paycheck. In San Francisco, a family of four with a household income under $120,000 is now considered to be low income. 
And of course, if you've been to the gas pump lately, you know that inflation as well as geopolitical tensions are really affecting the price of gasoline. The Oil Price Information Service, which is a firm that collects and calculates prices for AAA, released new data last Monday evening that shows that, according to CNN, the average price for a gallon of gas is now at an all-time record high. Now, Tom Kloza, who is the global head of energy analysis for the Oil Price Information Service, said that $5 per gallon gas nationwide is possible. I would believe it could go even higher. Now, the latest melt-up in gasoline prices came just as on Monday there was a news report that said the Biden administration is considering a U.S. ban on Russian energy imports. Well, on Tuesday, that became a reality. An article uh, that I picked up in the Edwardsville Intelligencer said that President Joe Biden ordered a ban on Russian oil imports due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the 45, the 45 days are now being allowed, or 45 days is being allowed for a wind down for continued delivery under existing deals. So what does that do to gas prices 45 days out. Now, the root cause of all this, geopolitical uh, tensions aside, politics aside, the root cause of all this is currency creation. And Alistair McLeod, past guest here on the program, wrote a terrific piece that I have a link to the article on the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. If you visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, Uh, I do have a link to the article. I'd encourage you to check it out. Alistair wrote this, and I think it really nails it. So I want to close this segment with this. Quote, today, this is the situation with the whole fiat hypothesis. It's been going on in its current form since 1971 when President Nixon took the dollar off the Bretton Woods fig leaf of a gold standard. With a few ups and downs since, now we have all bought into the dollar-based fiat Ponzi. Everyone committed to it not only sincerely wants to be rich, but believes we can be without having to work for it. Since the 1980s, the currency Ponzi was bankrolled by the expansion of bank credit aimed at consumers and their housing until the Lehman crisis. I want to stop for just a minute because if you look at where interest rates were from 1980 through the financial crisis, through the financial crisis rather, they went in one direction. Interest rates fell, and in a fractionalized banking system, when money is loaned into existence, lower interest rates encourages more borrowing, and more borrowing simply means that more currency is created. At the time of the financial crisis, though, as interest rates were reduced to zero. Nothing happened because consumers collectively had reached the limit on the proverbial credit card. So what happened? Ben Bernanke, as we talked about in the first segment, came out with this temporary program of quantitative easing. And since then, we've even gone as far as helicopter money, which we've seen over the past couple years. Now, back to what Mr. McLeod says. Quote, meanwhile... The political class has become complacent. For them, their central banks will continue to fund the state's excess spending 
while maintaining monetary and financial stability. And one can easily imagine that in dealing with matters of state, central banks are no longer consulted, their support is simply assumed. And that's where we are. As I mentioned in the first segment, the Federal Reserve is now indirectly monetizing the deficit spending, and loose money policies simply cannot end until government spending is reined in. That's why I would encourage you to get the March special report titled The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. Visit the website requestyourreport.com. I'll be glad to send you the report along with some bonus information. Again, the March report, The Case for Precious Metals, can be yours just by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. That's my program for this week. I hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. 